Wonderful. Well, let's pray together before we begin here. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Truly, your word is a lamp to our feet, a, gu- a lamp to our, our feet, a guide to our path, and we ask that you would illuminate our way through your word as we continue to meditate on it, as we sing of it, as we, as we memorize it, as we study it, as we preach it, as we hear it, and as we learn it. Uh, we pray that your word would have its perfect work in us. Lord, we ask that you would make your word sweet to us also. Uh, Lord, that your word would be our delight. May we live out the words of the psalmist here and discover what it means to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate on your law day and night for our everlasting good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing our exposition through Psalm 1, and I've gotten so many people giving me feedback, and most of the feedback has been, are you going to Psalm 2 next week? Uh, no, I'm actually at a snail's pace like I always do. Thank you, brother, very much. And um, my, my intention is to do four sermons here in Psalm 1 and then to look at Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 2. And then we're going to look at Psalm 3. I really believe these three psalms are foundational for the Psalter. I think that Psalm 1 introduces, as we looked at last week, the idea of a Torah psalm, which is expanded in Psalm 19 and ultimately leading us to Psalm 119, which the entire psalm there is about the law of the Lord, and we'll be there quite a bit today. You may want to put a finger there. And then Psalm 2 is all about uh, God's anointed, His Messiah. It's all about the King, and that prepares us for all the royal psalms of the Psalter. And then Psalm 3 really details for us the inner battle, the struggle, the existential struggle of the psalmist it ultimately finds its final reflection in the person of Christ and his anguish, his suffering, his, his passion. And so that's where we're going to go. And after that, supposedly I need to pick a book to exposit verse by verse. And uh, please pray for me in that. I really want to pick a book that is going to be very, very um, uh, meaningful for us. And how do you say that about the Word of God, right? I mean, any book in the Word of God is meaningful. But just from a pastoral perspective, I want to pick something that's going to be really uh, encouraging to to our church and something I feel like our church really needs to hear. So just uh, pray for all of that. But we are back here in this section today. We're looking primarily at verse 2. Verse 2. Let me just read that one more time for us, okay? In the spirit of this verse, it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. The whole focus here is about God's Word. I'm going to sort of expand upon the word here, law, Torah, and I'm going to to sort of just generalize that to mean that we can apply this to the whole Word of God. Not just the Ten Commandments, not just the Pentateuch, but the whole sum of God's Word, the whole totality of the revelation of God. The psalmist uses it that way, to speak of the sum or the total of God's Word being His law. And that's the way that we're going to look at it here most of all. You know, this, this verse really challenges us at a very fundamental level as Christians. As Christians, we are to be characterized by our devotion, our commitment, and our obedience to the Word of God. I mean, we are 
you know, uh, even in our study of Islam, we are people of the book. I mean, we are to be characterized by God's word. Uh, this is supposed to be our, 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 you know, lifetime ambition, our obsession, really. Uh, we are to be people that master God's book. And, and, and God's word tells us that the word of God should dwell richly inside of us. And so this really gets down to our lifestyle. Uh, it affects our habits. It affects what people call spiritual disciplines. How disciplined are we when it comes to the Word of God? For some people, it, it comes sort of uh, very naturally to be big readers, to, to love to study, uh, to memorize Scripture. For others, and I've spoken to several of you, where you didn't grow up reading a lot. You don't particularly like reading. Maybe you're more of a visual learner, or maybe you learn more audibly, and so you like to hear things, and that's how you like to learn. Despite all of those obstacles, all of those uh, challenges, and we all have them. Uh, uh, you know, I had a dear friend of mine who was a, a dyslexic pastor, and his entire congregation would have to read everything that he needed to study on tape, and he would have to regurgitate that uh, and listen to that time and again just to make it through his own study. So severe dyslexia could not literally read uh, a sign uh, a post out in the street and has to literally take everything in through the ear in order to come out and preach. And, you know, he had always been a good example to me of, hey, if he can do it, anybody can. And so I, th I think that regardless of our challenges... Uh, regardless of how, you know, we might be challenged in terms of reading or retention. Nevertheless, our duty before God is to love His law, to meditate on His Word, and to know the Word. And so I just want to point out four quick things just from this passage that I think is important for us. And it all will have to do with God's Word. Number one, notice here the remedy of God's Word. Of course, the remedy of God's word because we are taking heed to the context. Just look at verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. And this introduces a very strong adversative statement. But the antithesis of this, what's the opposite of all of this? The opposite of, of the wicked, the, the, the sinner, the, the scoffer. The opposite of all of that is that the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So in other words, the remedy for combating the influence of the world, because that's really what verse 1 is all about. The, the, verse 1 is all about the current of this world, the, 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 the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience that's, that really uh, vies for our affections and our attention and seeks to seduce us into its ungodly counsel. What's the remedy for all of that? It is the Word of God. It is the law of God. And, 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 and just in studying this, I was so uh, taken back by how much more I need to believe this, that the remedy for not only worldliness in me, but the worldliness all around me is the Word of God. That is really the remedy that God has given us for our soul. That is the primary, as the theologians say, the Word of God is the primary means of grace for us. 
It is the way or it is what God has ordained for you and I to grow and really for you and I to be sort of inoculated and to become immune to the world's deceptive schemes. You remember that word there in verse 1, the counsel of the wicked. That Hebrew word really having more to do with what is carefully planned. And the world plots and the world plans according to wickedness. And so what we need is instructions that will lead us away from the wicked schemes of the world. That's what we need. And that's exactly what the Scriptures provide for us. The Scriptures are a safeguard. Let me read to you Psalm 19. Remember, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119 really are all in league one with one with, with each other. Psalm 1 being the foundational step in that direction of Torah Psalms. Psalm 19 being another high point, And then Psalm 119 being a complete exposition of the law of God. But Psalm 19 verse 10 says, they are more, God's commands are more desirable than gold. Yes, than fine gold, sweeter than the honey that drips from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by God's commands, your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. This view of God's word led the psalmist to declare his allegiance to God's word and his hatred, his, even his, his opposition and his hatred for all opposing things to God's law. He didn't shy away from that either. Psalm 119 verse 104 From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Isn't that incredible what he's saying there? Anything that diminishes my understanding. Understanding of what? Arithmetics? No. Mathematics? Uh, Mechanics? Quantum physics? No. We're not talking about common grace. We're not talking about the data that a doctor knows. We're talking about the knowledge of God. We're talking about spiritual wisdom. Uh, what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 in terms of renewing your mind. He knew that the law of God can grant that renewal, that transformation, that understanding, that enlightenment. And therefore, anything that would undermine that, anything that would undermine God's law and its influence in his life, the psalmist declares, I hate. Think about that. Verse 128 of Psalm 119. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts, listen to this, concerning everything. I hate every false way. See, the psalmist was not like many in our sort of shallow, seeker-sensitive age today where you sort of kind of pick and choose the parts of the Bible you like to read or the parts of the Bible that you think minister to you more than other parts. No, no, no. For the psalmist, he understood that all of God's precepts are right concerning everything. And therefore, he says again, I hate every false way. You see, the psalmist was speaking in the spirit of what Peter talks about. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it really captures what I'm trying to say. It's really a childlike devotion to the Bible, a staunch fundamentalist streak in the Christian life that says, I believe God's word. God said it. That I believe it. How does it go? That settles it. Right? If God says it, we should believe it, and that should settle it. 
because it is God's Word. It's not just the Word of some enlightened teacher somewhere. It's not just a, a, a Word that comes from the medical field or something. This is God's divine Word. And so, you know, looking at the Word of God as inspired, divinely originated, supernatural revelation, that's important. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to this. Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And I wrote a little note. That's the way of the wicked of Psalm 1. Of Psalm 1. And verse 2 says, like newborn babies. And boy, do I know what those are like right now. <laughs> Long for the pure milk of the word of God. And let me tell you, oh man, here comes sermons about Eden. Because when my daughter wants milk, daddy is irrelevant. (laughs) I am as useless as yesterday's trash. She discards and disregards me quicker than anything I've ever seen. She sees mom go by, it's like, (laughs) she's in a trance. Why? Because she's longing for the pure milk of the word of God so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You see what he's saying there? It's almost like working backwards, right? What he's saying is that you will long if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. In other words, if you truly have been touched supernaturally, spiritually, if God has revived your soul, if you have been regenerated, if you have been transformed, if you have had a subjective, existential, spiritual, uh, a personal intimate encounter with the living God through His Word, then the taste of that is sweet. And what results from that is that it, there remains an ongoing desire. There remains an ongoing, uh, should be lifelong thirst, a craving, a hunger for more of the same. More sweetness. More kindness. More love. More grace. That's what the law of the Lord does in your heart when you, when you taste of it. Just like the psalmist said, sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb, the dripping honey. From the theologian at his desk or the preacher in the pulpit or the mother of three around the homeschool table, Scripture has the capacity to make us wise unto salvation. I, I never get over this. I don't care if we're dealing with a scholar who's putting together a Ph.D. thesis. He is, he is just as susceptible to forgetting this than, 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 than the simplest disciple in the body of Christ. That what he needs above everything else is the sacred writings. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Realize here that I spoke a couple of times in my manuscript regarding... Um, children and, and child rearing and moms and raising kids and so making a case for moms today. Second Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 13. You know this verse but the reason I'm using this verse is because it brings that same remedial characteristic that we're looking at here. Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.13, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, because he just got done talking about false teachers. And then he says, You, however, see the difference? See the remedy? This is how to counteract heresy. 
You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and you've become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And who did he learn them from? The great Apostle Paul? No. He says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Really, graphe, they're the Greek word graphe, technically speaking, should have been translated scripture in the NASB, but that's okay, we'll give it a pass. Same thing, sacred writings, sacred scripture, the Bible, the word of God, which is able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So much can be said of this, and I'm not leaving out verse 16 and 17 for no reason. I'm I'm saving it for a second here, okay, because we've got many points. Number one, the remedy of God's word. How do you combat the counsel of the wicked? How do you combat the, the, the sitting uh, in, uh, in the path of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers? The Word of God is how you combat all of that. Um, next, then, is also the sufficiency of God's Word. Why do I say that? Well, if you go back to Psalm 1, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. Whose law is it? It's the Lord's law. See, that's what makes the Bible sufficient. Uh, It's not just because we have Genesis to Revelation. It is sufficient if God would have just revealed Genesis. It's sufficient because it's God's Word. And God's Word is absolutely sufficient for whatever purpose He has ordained for it. Uh, The sufficiency of Scripture is very important for us, brothers and sisters. Not just because when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, what we're saying is that we disagree with other traditions and other heretical views of Scripture, like Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, that reject this notion of what the Reformed theologians called sola scriptura, uh, Scripture alone. And when they said Scripture alone... They did, not mean, they did not mean solo scriptura, which means scripture only, which means you can't read anything other than scripture. That's not what they meant. They, you can read other things. You could read the Fathers. You could read Augustine. You could read Polycarp, maybe. You can read uh, the, the, the creeds, the confessions. You can read uh, church history. You can read these fine statements that people have written. However, when it comes to the bar of truth, sola scriptura suggests to us that the Bible is the final authority. It is the, it is the ultimate bar of truth so that all schisms, all skepticisms, all divisions, controversies, theological formulations, everything, every debate has to be settled on the pages of Scripture. And Scripture is sufficient for all of it. Scripture is absolutely sufficient because it's His Word. Matter of fact, it's so sufficient that in Proverbs 30, the, 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 um, the preacher, Solomon, says, do not add to His words or He will rebuke you. <laughs> he will reprove you and you will be found to be a liar. Don't add anything to the Word of God. Same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Revelation chapter 22. Do not add to the word of God. It results in a curse. Why? Because scripture is absolutely sufficient. But when we're looking at Psalm 1, the sufficiency of scripture here is incredibly practical. In other words, it has a practical purpose here. Yes, it has the ability to to, to, to settle all of those issues, but really for the Christian life, Scripture is sufficient. God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. 
Again, Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And I think that, real quick, if you want to look at that, Psalm 19, verse 7, that's kind of important because the Hebrew word there, shuv, is, can be translated in various ways. The King James translated, translates it as converting, as if what he has in mind here primarily is the, the, the ability for the Bible to convert a person. Of course, I believe that. However, because First uh, Peter chapter 2 uh, suggests that, uh, that, that, that God's word is sort of the seed of the effectual calling of God. But here, I believe it's speaking of, uh, of more of how the uh, NASB has translated, something like restoring or reviving, vivifying the soul of man. In other words, it has the capacity to build us up in the faith when we are down. And that's the way he uses it in Psalm 23, verse 3. The psalmist talks about the law of the Lord reviving him, restoring him spiritually, not converting him to the faith. It says the, the law of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple or the testimony. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You see what I mean by the word of God is all sufficient. I want you to look at your Bibles this week differently. I want you to look at your Bible, looking at it and saying, that book has the capacity, it has the ability, and it is sufficient to build me up spiritually. So then the next question is, is, are we going to the Bible? Or if we want to be the blessed man of Psalm 1, are we meditating on on the law of the Lord day and night? Now we'll get to that. But connected very closely to this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture is the efficacy of Scripture. So the efficacy of God's Word. So we have already the remedy of God's Word, the sufficiency of God's Word. Third, the efficacy of God's Word. Uh, When we believe this, we will esteem the Word of God above all other words. I love books. Many of you know that. You've been to my house. I've got too many. my wife's I was I forgot who I was talking to the other day but said when we moved to our house I had 35 of those you know Walmart bins <laughs> plastic bins right 35 bins worth of books and I had to unload that myself out of the U-Haul truck okay I I, I deserve my books <laughs> I earned my books I put down that when we have this view of God's Word, we will treasure it above all other books. I have some great books in, our li- in my library. We've got some great books out in the bookstore out there. There's Puritan books, church history books, and, and, and you can do that with anything. Any confession, any creed, any doctrinal statement, any work of antiquity, anything that has ever been written under heaven and earth, under the, under the stars... We can never prize anything or be devoted to anything above the Word of God. And here, very much so, I'm preaching to myself that as much time and devotion as I spend with these other theologians, these other books, these commentaries, these books of theology, how much am I devoted to Scripture, Scripture, Scripture? Because Scripture alone, I think, has that efficacy, that ability, that means of grace Not that these other aids are not important, but Scripture should be primary, of course. 
Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, just to see the efficacy of the Word of God and just the, the commendation that comes when we give it that characteristic and when we believe and, and when we trust. See, because when we're saying we believe in the efficacy of the Word of God, what we're saying is that we place our confidence in Scripture for what? For everything. For our lives, for our marriage, for our family, for our kids, for work, for evangelism, for theology, for worship, for everything. And Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. That's an interesting statement, is it not? Because wasn't the word of God written by men? Paul puts the priority on the divine origination of Scripture. He says, but for what it really is, the Word of God. That's why I didn't feel bad building a whole point on the fact that it's the law of the Lord, underline the word Lord and make a point out of that. Because that's his point. The point is, is that it is God's Word. It is the Word of God. And he says, which also performs its work in you who believe. Oh, I tell you what, what, does the, what is the primary tool that the theologian needs when he approaches Scripture? Is it a lexicon? Is it a Greek or Hebrew aid? Is it a dictionary? Is it a commentary? No. The number one tool that you bring to the Bible when you study it is faith. Trust. Believe. Trust in its contents. Don't just know them. Paul spoke these words of the church, having already introduced the concept that it has the ability to produce that work in us. Matter of fact, since you're in Thessalonians, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because I think here what you find is a discernible pattern. A pattern that should characterize all of our lives. A pattern that characterized the life of the Apostle Paul, the church of Thessalonians, and everybody and anyone who takes the Word of God serious. And what is it? You'll see it. It's knowing the Scriptures, imbibing the Scriptures, internalizing the Scriptures, and then having the Scriptures produce fruit in you that becomes a pattern for other people to follow. Look at what he says, verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know. Now watch the pattern begin. What kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The reason why they were exemplary men is because of the activity of the Word of God in them. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having, watch this, received the Word. See that? They received the Word in much tribulation and joy of the Holy Spirit. And then look at the result. So that, purpose clause. You became became an example of, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, they followed the same pattern that Paul followed. Paul internalized the Word of God as an apostle. He knew the Word of God. He taught the Word of God. He became an example. They received the Word of God, internalized the Word of God, became an example for other churches, etc., etc., at infinitum. That's the way discipleship works. The best 
pattern for any biblical discipleship is somebody that is full of the Word of God, that knows the Word of God, that can minister the Word of God, and then perpetuates that pattern over and over and over to other people. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Or chapter 14, verse 15. I can't ever get that right. But he just says, you're full of knowledge. Therefore, you are able to encourage one another. You see that? It was the fact that they were flowing with the Word of God, that the Word of God could flow through them. That's the efficacy of God's Word. Now, let me just say a statement about what he says here in, back in Psalm 1. His delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, it is not enough just to know the Word of God. It's not just enough to have an intellectual assent to the Word of God. I mean, don't we know that experientially, practically in our lives? Couldn't we say that at times we're internalizing the Word of God? We're hearing it. Our brain is functioning. Uh, we're learning what verse and what chapter and verse that was. We're even hearing what the preacher is saying but sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, it seems as if the Word of God falls flat in our heart. It doesn't produce anything. There's no, and it doesn't affect any change. And that is because it's not just an intellectual exercise. Our affections are supremely involved here. He uses the word delight, uh, hafetz, in the in the. In the Hebrew, and that Hebrew word hafetz is interesting because in certain contexts it can be translated as jewelry. Huh? Because what it's saying is something like treasure. And in the way he uses it here is what he's saying is that he treasures the Word of God. That's the delight. He's gushing over the Word of God because it's able to produce Results. Ultimately, the results that we want are the results of spiritual prosperity, spiritual flourishing, spiritually, uh, to spiritually mature, to grow. That's what makes the godly Christian happy. Uh, that's how you become the blessed man of Psalm 1. It is not that your circumstances are perfect. It is not that your, your circumstances have been favorable this week or this month. It's not that financially you're doing okay this month. It's not that God is providing that job that you wanted, that spouse that you wanted, that house that you wanted, that place that you wanted, that thing that you wanted. It's not circumstantial. It's based on a knowledge of truth. It's based on the law of God being able to produce in us spiritual prosperity. This is the reason why God told Joshua, even on a national scale. See, this is what's so interesting, because I've been just poring over the Old Testament this week, but this is what's so interesting as we look at the Old Testament that a lot of times what happens now, especially looking from New Testament time to Old Testament time, is that much of what happens to Israel as a nation translates to us individually as a person. So, Joshua 1, verse 7. God tells him, Be strong and be very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. See, this is covenant language. I don't know if I made that clear. But when the psalmist is talking about delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, this is all in a covenantal worldview. 
This is, this is the way that the righteous behave who are in covenant community with God. The word of God is uppermost, or it should be, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. But I think spiritually that applies to us now. That as we're abiding in the word of God, we can expect, and this is what I'm saying, expect for you to mature, to grow, to flourish. This is why Jonathan Edwards, one of his resolutions in his 75 or 79 resolutions that he wrote, he said one of the resolutions was to study the scriptures so readily, so steadily, so often that he perceives himself growing thereby. (laughs) He says, I'm going to study the Bible to such a degree that I'm going to see its results in my life, spiritually speaking. That's how we should approach the Word of God. We should believe in its efficacy. We should believe that the Word of God is sufficient and effective for our lives. Think of how that transforms the way that you disciple your children. That as you're handing out the memorization cards or you're handing out the exercise to learn or memorize or to understand a verse, that what you're doing is effective because it is God's law. It is God's Word. Uh, As a parent, you should take the same advice that David gave to his son, Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Write that down. Have that reference. 1 Kings 2, verse 1. Because we don't talk like this anymore. Uh, for a number of reasons. Listen to this. David's time to die drew near. Wow. Uh, and in Acts chapter 13, it says that David fulfilled the purpose of God for his life, and then he died. Wow. See, David served a purpose for God. You see what I'm saying? And when that purpose was over, then his time was up. Same thing with us. We have a purpose given to us by God. We have a course. We have a race. There is a life. There there is a life that God ordained for us. And when it's up, it's up. And it's time for us to die. He says, he charged Solomon, his son, saying this, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Not very politically correct in our culture. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, His testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. Notice notice what He did there. He lavished the definition of God's Word upon His Son. He, he, he introduced all the various components of God's Word. It's just His statutes, which in a sense is a nuance different from His commands, which in a sense is a little different from His ordinances, which in a sense is a little different from His testimonies, but all of it has to do with the law of Moses. Remarkable. So that you would succeed in all that you do, wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry His promise which He has spoken concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful in their way, walk before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. We don't have time to investigate that concept He just introduced there. But I'm afraid that because of the prosperity movement, we are too gun-shy to talk about the benefits, the efficacy, the, the spiritual prosperity and the flourishing that comes from abiding in the law of the Lord. And what I'm saying is that all that flourishing, all that prosperity language is mainly spiritual. I mean, which one would you rather have? Would you, have, would you rather have the external 
Would you rather have the health now? You're healthy. Uh, you know, nothing ever wrong with you. Nothing's ever happened to you. Or would you rather so be built up, so prosper, so succeed spiritually that no matter what happens to you in this life, come what may, get whatever call from the doctor you may get, get whatever news from the employer you may get, get whatever news of any tragedy in the family that you may hear. And because you are firmly rooted and grounded in God's word, you stand the test of time because you are like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water you can eat all the organic stuff you want you're going to get sick one day organic gluten-free oh joseph urban was killing me with that stuff he does it for medical reasons but you know what i mean we are so health conscientious be careful you might eat a walnut that was not organically grown Next, I better move on. Next is an obsession with the Word of God. And when we say obsession, what I'm capitalizing on is what the psalmist declares here in the second part of the verse. He says, not just delighting in the law of the Lord. We could almost say he tells us how to do it. How do you do it? How do I so delight in the law of God? Well, wouldn't you agree this is not advanced theology This is simple but profound theology, right? Because he tells us the answer right here. Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Isn't that so true? You try meditating on something that you don't delight in. It's misery, right? Uh, You know, when we get certain uh, bills that come in the mail and they're telling us about this and that and insurance papers, I hate that stuff. It's like immediately, Trish... I mean, I can't tolerate reading one, you know, piece of mail like that. I don't delight. But could you imagine if you walked into my home and there I am in the corner meditating day and night on this insurance bill? You know I'm not delighting it. It would be a drudgery. But when you meditate on something, it assumes you are delighting. And as a matter of fact, to delight is going to increase our meditation. Thomas Manton, great talk about a great Puritan author, he wrote massive mammoth three-volume commentary on Psalm 119, the biggest in existence. And I pulled out a tiny little quote because I thought it was so profound. He says, delight causes meditation, and meditation increases delight. So we're in the self-replenishing cycle. When we are meditating on the Word of God, it gives us delight. When we're delighting in the Word of God, we tend to meditate. And when we meditate in the Lord, it gives delight. We're in this beautiful cycle of meditation and delight. Meditation and delight. Delight and meditation. One of the chief prayers we ought to be praying every time we approach the Bible, be it at church, be it at home on the couch, be it late at night, in bed, be it in the morning, you know, there's morning devotion people here, right? And then there's night devotion people here, right? And there are some crazy people that wake up in the middle of the night to do a devotion. I did that once with Ray Comfort. He was, we were doing a speaking engagement at Pennsylvania years and years ago, and we went to bed at a pretty early hour. He's kind of a responsible guy. In the middle of the night, must have been two o'clock in the morning, I hear all this rustling and tumbling and all this noise. I look over at what he's doing. He woke up to spend half an hour meditating on the Word of God. 
turned the light on, shut the door, and went back to bed. I thought, you are absolutely crazy. I'm not that disciplined, let me tell you. But the principle here is that regardless of your schedule, regardless of whatever formula you want to use for meditating and delighting on the Word of God, the conviction that we need to face is, are we? What are we doing? If it's not that, what do we do? How do we approach it? Are we intentional about it? Or are we just sort of superficial, sort of irresponsible, sort of negligent, sort of blind, you know, folded when we approach the Word of God? We have no plan. We have no purpose. We have no strategy. We don't think through it. Think through it. How are you going to approach the Word of God? And furthermore, you need to learn the Word of God. You need to learn more about the Word of God in order to delight in the Word of God. You need to know something of its parts, its components, its aspects. This is why I love biblical theology, because it shows me how the entire panoramic of the Bible goes together. That's why I'm so excited to study covenant theology uh, next month, because we're going to see how in the multiplex of covenants, God is, is unfolding his heavenly kingdom and accomplishing all of his redemptive purposes in Christ, and hopefully all of that is going to contribute to our capacity to marvel, to delight, to be amazed, to say with the psalmist, Oh Lord, how vast is the sum of your, of your law. How vast. Psalm 119, verse 160, he says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. That's exactly right. He says, Show me wondrous things from your law. My prayer for us is that every time we gather as a church, every time you open your Bible, and every time you're doing some devotion, that you would begin, at least with the thought, God, show me wondrous things from your law. Confess your inadequacy. If you have reading limitations, confess your reading limitations. If you are not given to reading, ask God to increase your desire to read. But say, oh God, open your law and show me wondrous things from your law. So that when we come to the Word of God, we marvel. You know what happens when we begin to see how glorious Scripture is? We just want to learn more about it. Again, we meditate on the things that we delight in. I mean, we have, sometimes we have no problem focusing on other things. Crafts. Um, job. Ministry, maybe. Um, food. Joseph Urban told me when we were here, there's nothing but restaurants out here. I'm like, yeah, Texans like to eat. It's like, I've never seen so many restaurants. I thought, you know what, he's right. We are professional restaurant samplers, right? We love to go eat. And people get all into their food, into their coffees. Here I am. I am the man, Lord. Sports, entertain, you get it. But when it comes to God's word, how much do we apply ourselves? How hard is it for us to squeeze even one drop of sweat as we study our Bible. 
the psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commands when you enlarge my heart. You see the prayer priority there? You come to God, ask for the right heart. God will work in your heart supernaturally, spiritually, by His Spirit. As God changes and, and transforms your heart, you will run to the commandment. You will run to God. There will be a zeal. There will be a, a, a blazing glory that results from God changing your affections to love His Word. And that should cause us to hasten to come to Scripture to look for those marvelous things. Well, our time is quickly fading. As I said with the rest of this psalm, every part of this psalm, how do we connect to Christ from here? It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and His law He meditates day and night. How do we connect that to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because that's important. Let me read to you something that Dennis Johnson said. As he reflected on this verse, he says, Dennis Johnson, he's got a book called Walking uh, with, Christ, with Jesus Through His Word. I believe we have it in the bookstore. He says, from one perspective, it makes sense to understand the blessed man of Psalm 1 as finding his truest, in fact, the unique, uh, uniquely true expression in Jesus alone. When he entered the world, it was with the express purpose of accomplishing the Father's will, delighting to follow, to follow the Lord's law that was inscribed upon his heart. How does it connect us to Christ? Well, Christ was the prototypical blessed man who always loved and delighted in God's law because he always obeyed God's law and he always fulfilled God's law and he always interpreted and taught and preached God's law and he was when he was in spiritual warfare against the devil he he was he had the law of God memorized so that he could speak and quote the law of God to the devil himself when the devil was assaulting him can you do that when the devil is attacking you do you know what scripture you should go to 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 to, to engage in spiritual warfare whether it be temptation, whether it be depression, whether it be anger, whether it be impatience, whether it be whatever, whether it be struggling with lust, struggling with food, struggling with materialism, struggling with fear, struggling with anxiety, whatever it may be, do you know where to go in the Word of God to remedy your condition and to fight the good fight? I'm praying that God will make us such men and women Men and women of the book, one book, master one book in this life, above all, master his law. Father, we pray that we would, by your grace and through the power that you give us in your Holy Spirit, not of our own flesh, not, this is not pull yourself up time by your own bootstraps. This is not moralism. This is love. This is delight. Help us if indeed we have tasted and, and, and we have seen the kindness of the Lord. Help us, therefore, to, to, to hunger and to thirst even more for your word. And let your word, as Jeremiah said, let your word be burning inside of us. Let it be burning in our bones so that we may proclaim it to our neighbor. Lord, you know how much this world needs to hear your word Father, and we pray that it would come through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.